Welcome to the Lancaster Patriot Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm joined today by Douglas Bond. He is an award-winning author of more than 30 books of historical fiction, biography, devotion, and practical theology. He is the director of the Oxford Creative Writing Masterclass, and in his spare time, he leads church history tours in Europe. Douglas is the father of six children and 11 grandchildren and counting. Uh, Some of Douglas's books include Hammer of the Huguenots, The Mighty Weakness of John Knox, Luther in Love, and the one I'm currently reading, The Hobgoblins, which is a novel about one of my favorite men in church history, John Bunyan. Douglas, thanks so much for joining the show today. And my first question for you is, of all the historical fiction books you've written, which one do you think would make the best movie? <laughs> That's a really good question, Chris. Thanks for having me on. It's a delight uh, uh, to do this. Um, well, you know, I, I guess that, that immediately makes me bolt back to a few years ago when there was a, a real stirrings on uh, turning Duncan's War, the first in my Chronic Covenant uh, uh, trilogy, um, set in the 17th century in the moorlands of Scotland. Um, the Covenanters were the really the Puritans of Scotland, and they were under great persecution. Uh, as many as 18,000 of them were killed for their faith in Christ um, during that uh, turbulent uh, century, uh, the 17th century. Um, and so Duncan's War was actually picked up by, by a... Um, or at least the early stirrings of it uh, were picked up by a... Um, a Christian publishing or a Christian a film uh, company uh, down in LA. I was speaking at a conference down there and a fellow came to it that was uh, uh, working in the industry, uh, an earnest Christian a member of uh, John MacArthur's church. And, um, and they started working on it and they made, posters and they did a soft soft release of it and they, they actually did a whole screenplay and uh and all but it fell apart at the <laughs> at the funding stage and also at the negotiation stage with my with my publisher uh, pnr so anyway so that sits there nobody's actually said that's completely off the table it's never going to happen <laughs> but there's an awful lot of hurdles and i told him at the gate i said listen i don't want <laughs> i don't want a mediocre movie just to have a movie one of my books in fact i'd rather not have a mediocre movie uh, i only want it if it's just you know barn burning good and um so anyway and that and, and barn burning good with uh, with film as you know probably chris is expensive <laughs> it's gonna cost millions and um so anyway that that one would would make a great a film and a great series you know because of it being a trilogy, it's really actually two companion trilogies because after Rebels Keep, the third one, um, there's a gap <clears throat> and um, the uh, family, my McKees family, has had to flee to the colonies and uh, it picks up them with King George's War and, and Jonathan Edwards' era in the 1740s in Upper Connecticut Valley. But, so I guess I'm, I'm wandering around a little as I answer your question. I think, I think War in the Wasteland a uh, more recent uh, book of mine set in uh, the Somerset Light Infantry, which, and in C.S. Lewis, young, bitter, angry teen atheist, second lieutenant uh, in his platoon. And um, so he's he's my antagonist in that book. Uh, he, told, he tells us in Surprised by Joy that he had endless arguments with theists and Christians in 
the trenches. So I give substance to those arguments and the rising action uh, uh, leading up to Lewis's uh, being wounded on April 15th, uh, 1918. Million dollar wound, he was out of combat, uh, but he had all of his limbs and and, and his mind. And um, So that, that book was hard to write because I was <clears throat> you know, immersed in <laughs> memoirs, people who lived it, uh, and um, having trouble sleeping <laughs> and my wife told me you know i don't have so much trouble solutions you're sitting there for two hours before bedtime reading world war one memoirs you know and uh well duh you know was kind of the response but that would make a great uh great film i think actually and of course because of the c.s lewis component would uh would have a, a fairly wide um uh, interest only needs a bunch of ditches with mud, blood, and corpses in them, and you've got the you've got the setting. But um, there, and there's others too. But I think that's where I would go initially. So Douglas, talk a little bit, maybe just about that one, War in the Wasteland. That's one I actually wasn't familiar with. Just to give our listeners an idea of of what you do with these stories. I know you do other types of writing as well, but specifically with these historical fiction stories. I mean, you're taking these great stories, these true stories, you know, in God's story of of the world and what he's doing and you're taking them whether it's uh, you know the covenant covenanters in scotland or c.s lewis here in world war one and you're turning them into a novel so you're taking some of these true elements you're also adding some literary license i would imagine just kind of tell our listeners what what your goal is with taking these stories and turning them into novels is that's a really good question uh chris and it, it is um uh, lewis said that uh writing uh non-fiction Versus writing, you know, creative fiction, uh, in his case, fantasy fiction largely, screw tape letters would fall into a different category, but um, that, uh, that writing nonfiction is relatively easy. You know, facts are stubborn things. They don't move. <laughs> you can write on them, really. And, uh, and, and you can go to bed and, and guess what? The facts are still right there in the morning. But when you, when you create a, a historical fiction, which some people think is an oxymoron, right? Which is it? <laughs> History or fiction, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that uh, I love the genre. I absolutely love the genre. And, um, I think it's one of the greatest ways in our homeschool over the years, we've used tons of Historical fiction is probably one of the one of the catalysts to me. Writing so much historical fiction, as I'm reading some of it, I'm thinking, I teach teach high school English, I teach writing, all of this. Uh, you know, I think I could do better than that. You know, so and my kids started prompting me too, Daddy, don't 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 read us a book. Tell us a story, one that you make up mm -hmm. right now. You know, <laughs> they were badgering me about that, and um, and we have books lying in the walls in, in the house. You know, my six kids growing up, but. Um, so for me, I think uh, I, I want the actual history. I'm writing about a particular period of time, whether it's Calvin and the betrayal or Luther and Luther and love, Katerina Van Bora from her perspective in Luther and love, or, um, you know, John Bunyan in the Hobgoblins, um, um, <clears throat> the, the War on the Wasteland here, I've got a copy in my lap. Um, I, I care about what I'm you know, writing, I'm choosing to write about something that really matters to me and the people matter to me and, and their contribution and their moment in redemptive history, as you called it so well and wisely. Um, you know, what we think of as secular history isn't secular. There isn't, there isn't a secular blade of grass in this universe. There's a secular molecule in this universe. Right. You know? And 
So I, when I go into a particular period of time that I'm reading about, getting getting fascinated with, my family has called them daddy's manias. When I when I get my teeth in another writing project, um, I'm in one right now. Um, and um, you know, I kind of eat, drink, sleep, and breathe those uh, things. I have to I have to intentionally shut things off and you know reenter the family after after a day of writing and so forth. But uh, um, <laughs> but it is uh, my method is basically I, I know I've got my character. I never tell the story from the point of view of. Bunyan or Calvin or Luther or mm. John Knox or you know uh, or John Wycliffe. I never tell the story from their point of view, and and I guess the reason for that is multiple. But um, first and first and foremost, it's not the best way to actually um, meet somebody. You know, uh, the best way is to to create a lens for your reader that your reader can relate to, that your reader feels like they begin to know and they begin to like things about them. Now there's things they don't like about them, but then that's, that's life, isn't it? In a, in a fallen world post Eden. Um, and so you create a character that is um, engaging to your reader who's a fictional character, but they're an authentic character. They, 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 they have all of the smells and, 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 and looks and sounds of, a person, a whether it's a teenager, or in, in World War World War One, it was teenagers. By the end of the war, they had ten-year-olds in the trenches. But you know, and C.S. Lewis had his nineteenth birthday as a second lieutenant on his first day in actual combat in the trenches. On that, on that first birthday, he describes having a bullet whistle past his head. He said that it whined like a <laughs> like a peacetime poet or a journalist's uh, <laughs> bullet. Typical C.S. Um, Lewis. <laughs> not, a, not a fan of journalists or peacetime poets, was he? But um, and for good reason. But um, and so uh, you know, I can cr create a, a lot of my fiction is in the YA category. Publishers, you know, publishers rank books in in their developmental uh, age categories. I, I I agree with Lewis that there's really only two kinds of books: good ones and bad ones. You know, <laughs> uh, poorly written ones and and masterfully written ones. And my goal is to write the latter, not the former. But um, I'm, I'm sure I don't always land there. I hope I, I hope I do. I hope I get better all the time. I saved Bunyan for many years because I wanted to be more mature as a writer, uh, more, you know, more certain of my voice as a writer, uh, because I just think so highly of Bunyan. I think, uh, you know, I mean, well, you know, <laughs> just in terms of uh, publishing statistics, you know, right. progress, you know, 1678 has never been out of print, translated to hundreds of different languages, and has sold more copies than any other book except the English Bible. Um and uh, J.K. Rowling step aside. Uh, she had to write seven books to exceed uh, uh, Bunyan's. Right. Uh, one was an the Guardian, where they were touting her as now surpassing Bunyan. No, no, <laughs> this is basic math. I'm not good at math. Neither was C.S. Lewis. I'm not good at math, but I do know that one book versus seven books uh, is a, is a better publishing uh, record. But um, so I create that lens, and then I plop them down in the midst of the history. And uh, and things are dangerous, and and there's bullets flying, and there's artillery landing, and and there's uh, there's red coat dragoons breaking in on field meetings and uh, killing people and dragging your field preacher away to be hanged, uh, drawn and quartered in some cases, and um, 
it's it's a real world and it's a dangerous world uh we we we've just realized that again haven't we i mean how could we forget but uh you know we just think again peace and safety and lo and behold you know a month ago or so what do we get we get you know war breaking out in the middle east and and um who knows and 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 of course rioting in our own streets again and uh it is a dangerous world this is not heaven and this is very much post fall eden and um uh, um, and, and it, it is uh, important for readers to understand that. It's important for children. I write also for children. My um, my newest children's book release was in August. Um, I, I just a delightful project. I love writing it. Uh, God's Servant Ruth. And it's uh, the second in a series of who knows how many books it'll be with PNR, but um, uh, set in Naomi and Ruth's day and uh, drawing from themes from scripture, but in, in poetic verse, um, and retold in poetic verse and in an illustrated uh, volume. And, you know, it, the, the Bible does all this for us. It, it tells us things are not the way they're supposed to be. Uh, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of wrongdoing. There's a lot of false accusations. There's a lot of betrayal. I think it's really significant that in Jesus' earthly life, um, uh, he was betrayed. And not betrayed by some guy down the street, you know, some guy in a different town. He was betrayed by one of his insiders, Mm -hmm. one of those closest to him. That's really significant and important. Uh, take, for example, too, there's that episode where Jesus is preaching in, in Nazareth, and, and his mom, apparently Joseph had died by this time, and his mom um, and, and, and his siblings, and these are real blood siblings, uh, Rome tells us otherwise, but the, the, the scripture, the evidence of scripture, I've highlighted it and, and cross-referenced it in my Bible, is so overwhelming that these were brothers and sisters born of Mary. Um but they think that he's gone crazy. He's his own family, right? <laughs> they think he's bonkers. And they're coming to restrain him and take him out of the synagogue, you know, and, and, and try to, you know, probably chain him in the basement, you know. Uh, I don't know if they had basements. But, uh, you know, they were going to restrain him because he was a madman, you know. This is the kind of world that our children, your children, Chris, uh, you know, my grandchildren now, my, 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 uh, my youngest is 18 now, but, um, um, you know, this is the world they're growing up in and are going to live in is a world that is full of betrayal. It's full of even family members uh, sometimes um, uh, betraying, dishonoring parents uh, and so forth. It's, it's a really ugly world. How do we prepare them for that? Well, we immerse them first and last in the Bible. I mean, we, you know, how do I create these stories? I create them by being immersed in my Bible every day. And um, I want to have the biblical perspective. I want God's perspective on uh, this particular history I'm writing about, whether it's World War One or World War Two, or, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of years, you know, before. Uh, before Christ, um, uh, in the, uh, God's servant Job, um, and on and on, whatever period of time I'm in, I want to think God's thoughts after Him, and so being uh, as a writer, uh, you know, being biblical, being saturated in the Bible, uh, is absolutely essential to creating authentic characters. Um, you know, there's only one perfect hero. <laughs> And that's Jesus. And uh, so all the heroes that I hold up, you know, they've got feet of clay, 
some have more feet of clay than others. And, you know, Martin Luther in, in Luther Love. I mean, this was a guy who probably was really hard to be married to. I right. mean, he was a bull in a china closet. He was like a mixed martial art, you know, uh, a pit bull uh, theologian taking taking false teaching by the throat, you know. Um, and uh, that, that might be difficult to live with, you know. Um, <clears throat> but um, it is, um, and it's important that we, that we portray that. The Bible does that. You know, here's Abraham. You know, and, and, and God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, you know, to be the, the um, you know, paragon of faith, the, the harbinger, the, the, you know, the, the, the prototype of the man of faith who believes God. And uh, it's, you know, he, he doesn't work to win God's favor. God has placed his favor on him. And uh, lo and behold, we're not very far into, into Genesis and that whole account. And and Abraham's throwing Sarah onto the bus in Egypt, and then again later. And then lo and behold, his son Isaac's going to do the same stinking thing. And it's just like, what? These are our heroes? You know, you go to Hebrews chapter eleven, and <laughs> Hebrews chapter eleven has got some. You know, there's some strange bedfellows in there. You know, it's that, that are listed as people of faith. It shows how expansively generous and kind and gracious God is uh, toward us. Um, these are people who put on display during their own lifetimes uh, how how desperately they needed the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ alone to save them um, and to make them people of faith uh, that would be included uh, there. So I want authenticity. That means gritty sometimes. Um uh, it, it, I was just describing a manuscript to a publisher in Scotland that I'm negotiating with about about a, a, a book um, uh, manuscript right now, uh, and and I told him right at the gate, I said, "This is gritty. This is uh, this may not be for your agenda. I don't know, right. um, but but it's it's gritty because it's 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 authentic. It's like the real world. I never engrandize in the Bible. Never does. I never uh, I never uh, you know." Um, you know, make uh, violence and evil gratuitous. Uh, and I'm not going to do 27 minutes of blood and gore at the beginning uh, of a book, even if the even if the period of time I'm writing about in history is called the killing time. Hmm. You know, Hammer the Huguenots, my book, um, written on location in France in 2013, uh, in all these various places where there were Huguenot engagements and Huguenot massacres. Uh, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris was horrible. 1572, August 24th, was horrible. It was a bloodbath. You know, the sun was running red mm. with with blood and body parts. And, um, well, I'm not going to aggrandize that. I'm not going to make that gratuitous. I want, I want sin and evil always to disgust my reader. And not to allure them uh, by the by the grotesque and by the violent, and uh, I think that's a very important line um, in my Oxford Creative Writing Masterclass that I I lead uh, twice a year in, in Oxford. I have aspiring writers who come, and, and everybody comes and brings samples of their writing, and we throughout the week as we're exploring all these places and filling our, the, the bank of our imagination and our knowledge in order to write well. Um, uh, we go to Bunyan's uh, Elstow Abbey, and we go to you know 
all these Lewis and Tolkien sites and 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 uh, um, William Cooper is one of my all time favorite poets. Um, uh, maybe I'm a little crazy like he like he was. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I just appreciate him so much. Um, you know, and, and, and all of that. I uh, I, I want my my, my um, students there in the Oxford uh, masterclass. I, I sometimes have to rein them in. You know, they think they think that for them to write and be sort of sort of accepted as on, you know honest and authentic a writer, that they need to use uh, gratuitous foul language, for example. Sometimes, so they're reading and you know in our our Cotswold cottage where we stay on Banbury Hill Farm, north of uh, north of Oxford, and they're reading and they're you know they've got to this language and, it's, and and then we that's great i'm always glad when they when they do because then we get to talk about that you know um how do we how do we address that is that real uh, one of my non-believing neighbors read war in the wasteland he's gritty you know really gritty fellow fellow <laughs> and uh when he was done he says doug i loved it but he said I think you. I think you. Uh, I think it's a little bit more coarse language in those trenches in World War One than you portrayed it. You know, and <clears throat> yeah, okay. You know, he. I guess he wanted. Uh, you know, a more foul foulness. There's a lot of foulness in it because there was, but I didn't want to make it um, gratuitous. So I would never, in any of my writing. <clears throat> Um, rein me in, Chris. If this isn't the direction you want me to go, but I would never use the Lord's name in vain, ever. Right. Because I believe that is using the Lord's name in vain, and that that dishonors Christ, that that dishonors the Lord. I don't even like using euphemism at all mm-hmm. um, or the name uh, of the Lord, even though in authentic real world, uh, unbelieving world, people do that and way worse all the time. I'm a Christian writer, first and last, and I answer to God the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the words I choose to put down on the page. And especially in my YA, my young adult uh, fiction, don't ever want to be fitted for new neckwear. It's better that I have a millstone hung about my neck and that I be cast into the deepest sea. Jesus wasn't telling, you know, haters, Pharisees, but he was telling his own disciples that. Then that we, then we offend one of these little ones. So yeah, they may encounter some things they're going to have to talk to mom and dad about what's going on. Um, um, you know, there, there's explicit sexual things in the Bible, but they're, they're never gratuitous. Right. Nobody reads, you know, um, you know, a rape scene in the Bible, and there are rape scenes, there's gang rape scenes in the Bible. Nobody reads that and says, cool, I'd like to do that. Right. No. Nobody would ever do that. Or if they do say that, they should be in an institution somewhere, uh, you know, in chains for the rest of their uh, natural life in this world. That's um, the Bible portrays evil and it always repulses, uh, is revolting to uh, us as we read it. Um, and, and I think that's, that's my goal when I have to portray evil in my, in my stories. The world out there, it's a dangerous place. There is sin, there is evil. How do we prepare our children for that? And I'm going to tie this together and then let you respond to it. I think Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress is a great example of how good storytelling can change the world. Because we look out there and we see there is a lot, there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of negativity, there's a lot of pagan storytelling going on out there where people are sending a message to the next generation. 
And they are telling them through that storytelling what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, but they're using the wrong standard. And so, you know, when Bunyan wrote his book, and and now that it's gone all over the world, that's a book. I mean, that's, you know, to C.S. Lewis's point, that's a that's a children's book, that's an adult's book, that's a book for everyone. And it's, yeah, a, exactly. it's, it's a book full of danger. It's a book full of, there's dragons in there, there's death. Uh, I have a, a quote here from when Faithful is burned at the stake, and Bunyan describes it like this. He says, They therefore brought him out to do with him according to their law, and first they scourged him, then they buffeted him, then they lanced his flesh with knives. After that, they stoned him with stones, then pricked him with their swords, and last of all, they burned him to ashes at the stake. Thus came, <clears throat> thus came Faithful to his end. And, and, and stories like that, and I know you have things like that in your stories where maybe didn't end the way that we would like it to for the righteous, but it's, it's, but at the same time, when you read that story from Bunyan, you want to be faithful, not the court that's executing him because Bunyan is painting it in this way so that, that it's, it's eliciting in us this response of courage and righteousness and uh, I, I think, Douglas, one of the reasons we have such a culture full of weak men who are not opposing evil is because we've stopped telling the stories that build character, those stories that turn boys into men. And so uh, I, I want you to respond to that. And then uh, maybe maybe you've already shared one, but uh, what would be a good book for someone, uh, you know, maybe a dad to read to his son that you've written? And uh, just respond to that idea of, of look, we, we want our kids to know that there are there are dangers out there, there are dragons out there. But here's how you respond to it: you, you don't you don't give up. Look what these men and women have done, and uh, and follow in their steps. I mean, you could tell people that, but the power of story is is something different. Absolutely, Chris. Well put. I, you know, I, I'm passionate about this. I uh, have four sons, two daughters. I, I'm just I'm passionate about this in our world. I mean, this is a world of uh, some of the greatest um, gender confusion. I think that that we've ever that we've ever experienced. The, the normalization of of ruining masculinity. I mean, it's just that that's one of the the effects of all of this uh, this this gender um, sexual revolution that we are in. Um, there is a toxic war on masculinity, if I may borrow Nancy Piercy's uh, title, um, and and it's destroying. Uh, it's destroying a whole generation of young men. And alas, and here's my my biggest concern, is <clears throat> what's happening in once faithful, confessional, Bible-believing, Bible-proclaiming churches that are now accommodating progressive ideas. Um, it is utterly destructive to, guess who? The boys. It's destructive to the girls too. And in fact, you know, the statistics are in. There's far there were far more suicide attempts and successes uh, among uh, girls in this particular moment than there have been among boys. Although uh, adult males, far and away, exceed. Um, uh, it, that's the single greatest demographic for suicides now is adult white males. And um, why is that? And I think part of the reason is that we have we have pitched biblical masculinity into the into the into the trash heap uh, of our culture, and uh, more than ever before. I, I know statements like that are a little bit too expansive sometimes, but certainly in terms of uh, how defining. I mean, we have we have Supreme Court justices that can't define what a woman is. Um, <clears throat> more than ever before, uh, we need. Of, uh, biblically informed storytellers 
who can capture the minds and hearts uh, of this generation uh, of young men. And, um, you know, we have all the deadbeat ads. You know, the divorce rate in, uh, in the believing church, this just sends a shudder up my spine, but the divorce rate in the believing church is, is almost neck and neck with the secular unbelieving world. And we have not always deadbeat dads doing that and, and husbands. I mean, we have an increase, uh, a huge increase in uh, evangelical feminism, which is, which is telling lies to, um, to, 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 to wives and moms in ostensibly believing homes and churches. And this is utterly destructive. The next book on my list right now, I'm starting it today, is uh, you know the Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age by Rosario Butterfield. These are and, and number three. What's number three? Feminism, in all of its forms, is contrary to the Word of God. And uh, you know we have we have what I would call uh, um, worship, entertainment worship in most of our churches. Um, uh, even in, in confessionally reformed churches, um, most of our worship is uh, entertainment-driven worship. The setup is uh, the nightclub liturgy, and very often, what we're singing, how we're singing it, is uh, a feminized, uh, a feminized liturgy. Um, oftentimes, with uh, female uh, worship leaders, put the air quotes around that. Um, this does not produce a generation of stalwart um, <laughs> Christian young men who will rise up and uh, stand for Christ against the enemies of the gospel, come what may. And, and the thing I like to, I like to write about uh, people like John Bunyan, who said that you know he, he all Bunyan would have had to do is take the oath of allegiance. To um, uh, to Charles II, you know, sixteen sixty, the restoration of the monarchy after Oliver Cromwell and uh, <clears throat> the interregnum, and uh, uh, you know, when does Bunyan get arrested and thrown in thrown in prison? Sixteen sixty, mm. and all he would have had to do is take the oath to Charles II as the head of the church, and Bunyan's like, ah, job's already filled. King Jesus is the head of the church. This this is why all the covenanters died. Right, that was the thing. All they had to do was swear allegiance to the crown. And some of them did. <clears throat> some of them took the oath. And they did it. They, they said, well, you know, I can continue to preach. I'll be faithful in all these other areas. Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. We need young men who are inspired, who are thrilled with the heroes that have gone before us, warts and all, but who stood their ground where the battle lines were drawn. And in their day, the battle line was drawn on who's the head of the church. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. it the temporal crown? And, and he can he can have his Archbishop William Laud uh, revise the the uh, the liturgy, Laud's liturgy, and force everybody to use Laud's liturgy in the prayer in in public worship. There's actually a lot of good things in the, in the Anglican Book of Prayer. Uh, Laud Laud tore up all the <laughs> a lot of the good stuff, but. Um, but nevertheless, but, who, but, but what business does the secular monarch have telling Christians how they worship? That's why we exist as a country. 
that's what our that's what our forefathers were fleeing back in 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 the UK was they were fleeing uh, kings who were usurping the crown rights of the redeemer and his kirk, as the Scots put it so well, and they were prepared to resist the crown rights, uh, to resist the usurper of the crown rights, even with their blood, and they did. Many of them spilled their blood. We need men who have that kind of spiritually and theologically and biblically informed intestinal fortitude who will stand and deliver uh, come what may. And right now, there isn't, there's virtually nothing in our culture that is producing that. Um, there is almost everything in our culture that is running counter to that and telling men to, if they if they want to, <clears throat> even in the church, if you want to be spiritually minded and all that, you have to sing like a woman. You have to talk like a woman. You have to, in some measure, dress like a woman. You have to be feminized in order to do that. I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying anything disparaging about uh, the fairer sex here. Um, uh, I think that we men are to lay down our lives. What are we, we're made stronger. I mean, let's, the science is in. Let's. I don't even have to go over it, right? Men are bigger, stronger, more muscle mass, more oxygenated organs and muscles than women. And, you know, it, the examples of this are just over and over and over again. Uh, you can take number 200 male tennis player on the world circuit, and he can play number one female and beat, and, and be out partying all night you know, the night before, hit the test court and beat her soundly. Is that because men are uh, um, better than women? That God loves men more than women? It's none of those reasons. It's by purposeful design by God. And what does he call men to do with that extra strength they have, that extra size that they have? Well, serve, protect, provide, love their wives. And her daughters, uh, stand in the gap, jump in front of the freight train, whatever it takes to protect these precious, wonderful, weaker vessel. You know, feminism teaches us to uh, shudder and not want to use Peter's phrase. Weaker vessel, that doesn't mean that she's lesser. That she's, what it means is she's more important. I'm supposed to take my, I'm supposed to take my strength, my authority in, in my home. And I'm supposed to use that headship and that authority to protect, provide, love, lavish with my with all of my attention, but lead and lead like a man and lead my and teach my sons from the from birth to lead like a man. They need their mother very much so. But um, so many sons now, of course, but back to the back to the uh, uh, the statistic, uh, the divorce statistic, which is just I just. It, it, it really does. It sends a shudder up and down my spine. These, there's so many boys growing up in single-parent homes, and the vast majority of the time, those single-parent homes are mom. Mm -hmm. Bless them. It's hard. In the church, you have single moms raising boys. The, 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 uh, the men in that church need to intentionally and, sp and very specifically come alongside those boys and train them to be godly men. So I write books. I can't do much, but I, but I'll write books. I want to get those books in the homes. I want to, I want my books in the homes where those bless their hearts, those 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 single moms are raising boys. 
and I have I get I get you know uh, mail from single moms raising boys mm. who thank me for my books. Yeah, that in their desperation and they're trying to and you know so you asked me Chris you know what what specific books so I'd say you know basically all my all my uh, fiction is designed to help boys become men godly men. Uh, all of them, but I have two volumes called uh, Fathers and Sons. Of first one is Stand Fast, second one is Hold Fast. And I wrote them as devotions. <laughs> I started writing them when my oldest son uh, was twelve, and I'm looking around. I was an elder in the church, and I'm looking around. I'm hearing I'm hearing these stories that are breaking my heart, and I'm looking at you know four sons, and my oldest son is you know entering puberty. Changed and I thought, you know what? I want to make sure I cover all of the important topics with my sons, each one of them. So I sat down and I started writing specifically devotions I wanted to have with my sons, uh, with Roger, you know, with Cedric, with Desmond, with Giles, and that um, that would cover the important themes, some of the some of the weighty ones that the Bible covers, and um, lo and behold. I, I told PNR about it, and they said we're sending you a contract. You know, blah blah blah. And the rest is history. Um, and fine, but I was writing those as a father. I was writing. Out, I wasn't writing because I'm the expert father. <laughs> oh, I want to dispel that right away. Uh, because I've got this all wired. I was writing it out of my own felt need as a father. I need this manual of of readings that I can sit down with my sons. Um, we got parallel passage. We got discussion questions at the end of each each of these readings. And and I'm telling stories in those uh, vignettes of heroes in various contexts, both biblical heroes and heroes. Uh, one of my heroes is John Himmiger. Bless his heart. He was uh, he was a P forty seven flyer and he was my neighbor growing mm-hmm. up and he was an earnest and godly Christian. In fact, uh, the record indicates he shot the last uh uh japanese plane down uh and very likely uh day of well it was day of but even after the signing on on the uh on the us uss missouri the, the unconditional surrender <clears throat> and um but he's up in the sky dogfighting you know they're not they don't know anything about this their cell phones are off you know they're busy with the, the, the stick shooting you know their 50 cows off their wings and um and um what a what a what a paragon that man was of godliness. Um, oh my goodness, uh, don't get me started. But so, I, and I tell various stories of humble men who were Christians who stood and delivered and did what they had to do uh, in war and in, in other in other contexts in law enforcement and, and uh, in the courtroom and uh, so forth. Um, and I want to inspire my sons to be godly men. That's that's my goal in all the books, but stand fast and hold fast. Two volumes set. I've got those available um, as a set on my on my website at bombbooks.net. Um, and I just I feel like it's so important to captivate the minds and hearts of our sons early, and and before the lies get hurled at them, uh, before all the falsehood and all of the conspiracy uh, to destroy who they are, who God made them to be uh, in his image, but he made them to be male. He didn't make them to be female. And, right. and for the girls, he made them to be women. And, and the Bible, we don't have to make this stuff up. The Bible tells us the, the difference in roles, the difference in roles in, in a marriage. Uh, you know, all of life is hierarchical. Um, but, but what uh, theory 
uh, social Marxism tells us today is that uh, is that um, there's oppressors and there's the oppressed, and men are oppressors and women are the oppressed. Well, those are lies. Those are cultural lies. Have some men been oppressors of women? Absolutely. And they should be, they should, you know, in some cases, they should be strung up for that. And uh, the, our, our society has to censure that in its fullest extreme, um, the fullest extent of the law. Uh, but uh, that is not an accurate way to define the, the, the history of conflict in the world, that men are oppressors and women are the oppressed. That creates a, an entire feminized culture of victimhood that destroys families and it destroys women first and last who embrace those views but it destroys it destroys manhood and masculinity so these are really you hit some hot buttons for me chris i think this is really critical and i've been writing my books to try and help um boys in a, in a, you know when i started my my first book was published in 1999 you know what the, the the kinds of things that were on my radar right then as i was writing were, were so benign compared to what we've got now. High octane. It's in all the curriculum in our schools. It's uh, you know the, the, the mainstream media. It's what we get. It's what we get assaulted with from the mainstream media. It's in politics. It's everywhere. Right. And and uh, you mentioned there the you know it's really the story of Marxism and the story of the struggle. And then you even talk about you know the science. No, nobody can deny the science of male and female, but the culture out there is telling a story about male and female. And it's, mm-hmm. it's the story that's getting people. It's, it's the Netflix shows and, and docu-series. It's, it's the, you know, in the past it was the sitcom, yeah. you know, it's, it's presenting a different story than what, what you're and what Christians are trying to tell. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, you're, you're, we're back to this theme again, isn't it? And the, 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 the power of storytelling. The power of an illustration that people can immediately be engaged in. Their imagination is awake. Jesus used the method all the time, right? Who is my neighbor? You know, he could have said, he could have given us a, a theological, uh, denotative definition uh, uh, of neighbor. Jesus didn't do that. Right. <laughs> There was a man going down to Jericho. What does he do? He launches into a story, the beginning exposition of a story. (laughs) Because Jesus knew the power of story. God, the triune God knows the power of story. Our Bibles are not a manual uh, of uh, of laws. They include laws, and and very importantly, include laws. But that's not what they are. They're a story. Even the giving of the law at Sinai is embedded in a historical account, a story of stuff that really happened. Moses was really up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and there really was flames and thunder and lightning and earthquake going on while he was encountering God up there, and God was giving him the law, those two tablets of stone. All that's real. and um, <clears throat> But it was a part of a story. It was conveyed to us. Those laws are conveyed to us in the context of a story. The secular, unbelieving world, the enemy, the devil himself, knows the power of story. And he gets in there, and he, and of course, uh, film is controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm not a guy who's finding demons under every bush, but I'm telling you what, the devil is real, and spiritual warfare is real. And we have to prepare our sons to be engaged manly in that warfare 
And because the world is, the devil's not going to let up. And he, he shanghais stories and he, and he distorts them, bends, bends them out of shape, creates caricatures, and powerfully conveys these lies into the minds and imaginations and souls of this generation. Uh, and it, it's destructive. You know, C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he talks about Eustace Scrub and how he, he didn't read any of the good stories. And so he wasn't he wasn't prepared to deal with the dragons. And, and I was listening to something recently saying, you know, the stories out there that the world is telling, they're actually they're not saying that there's no dragons or there's no danger. But what they're teaching people is we can't oppose it. We can't rise against it. We are just victims. There is no defeating the darkness. And that's the thing with somehow evil is presented in these these worldly stories to say, you know what? Evil wins in the end. And that's not the message of, of the Bible. And that's not the message. And I, I, you know, as far as the power of stories, I think of William Bradford. He was kind of orphaned, raised by his uncles. Um, but other than the Bible, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs was essential to his formation to say, yeah. you know what, these stories are what sho are showing me what it means to be a man and that we can be victorious, even if that means death. That's a message that the world doesn't send. It's nihilistic. Uh, there's no there's no hope. Evil wins in the end and just give up. But good stories like the ones you're telling inspire young people and old people to say, you know what, our job is to be faithful and in our faithfulness, we can be victorious. Yeah, that's well put, uh, Chris. It, it really is, and you know that's a, that's a wonderful thing about it. I mean, what was that? I think it was Blaise Pascal said that the most the most exhilarating thing would be to be out at sea in a violent, horrific storm. Mm. You know, the ship pitching all over the place, but to know that you're going to come safely into harbor in the end, or to be in the most uh, uh, the, the hottest, most engaged warfare, but to know you're not going to get shot and your your army is going to win. Um, and guess what? <laughs> that that's true. We we're on the we're on God's side. God is the victor. I'm reading Revelation right now. I was just sitting up last night reading it for bedtime, and um, you know the victory. Sure, we know the end of the story. <laughs> uh, King Jesus is going to come. He's going to conquer all his and our enemies, and it, and, it, and so it's a great army to be engaged in. We can engage in it, not 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 worrying about preserving our own life. Ultimately, we have eternal life. We've already promised that, and King Jesus is going to be victorious. And so it's just incredibly inspiring and wonderful to know that. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that in the dust and. <laughs> And grit and thirst and itch of the real world does it you know when you're uh you know when you've got a child who's who's been who's been believing the lies as as a young adult or whatever and it, it, you know you think wow are we actually gonna be victorious and and we go back to our bibles and the answer is yes saints apostles <laughs> prophets answer yes we are going to be victorious it's really going to happen um <clears throat> the sons of god go forth to war and guess what God is on their side. He is their captain, and victory is sure. And so, I guess one of the one of the books I I um, uh, have completed, and it's out there at uh, four different publishers right now. Um, <clears throat> it's called Toad Pipe Tutorial, and it's uh, the subtitle is How to Destroy Their Marriages. And I pick up on the C.S. Lewis approach, the diabolical perspective. 
And um, I wrote this whole book in, in uh, four weeks. I got my teeth in and I just it just kept coming, pounded it. Uh, month of August, I was just totally immersed in this. Um, and um, it's it 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 is uh, screw tape letters ask. It goes into uh, what Lewis mentions in screw tape letters, which is the Tempters Training College for Young Devils. And uh, so, my having been a classroom teacher all these years, I create a, um, a professor toad pipe, arrogant, pedantic, you know, uh, you know, tries to tries to cow his students with every like, shock and all, and all that, um, who uh, is uh, training the elite young devils who are going to go into uh, the boudoir. They're going to go into the marriage, and they're going to destroy the marriages. And they particularly are targeting uh, those so-called Christian marriages. And so I go through uh, that whole diabolical pers perspective. Uh, it was not really fun to write. I mean, it was fun at first, you know, I mean, to create that dialogue. But as Lewis says at the beginning in his preface to Screwtape Letters, it, you know, it would have, it became oppressive. And, you know, it would be oppressive to your readers. So it's a fairly short book. Uh, it's uh, a book that's designed to be used in premarital as well as marital counseling, uh, with discussion questions at the end, parallel readings in scripture and so forth after each tutorial. Uh, and then the one I'm really working on and enjoying right now, uh, is, uh, a family devotions. I'm really big on family worship. I love, I've loved leading family worship over the years with my kids, um, and sometimes my grandkids, we need to be in the word. We need to, it needs to be engaging. We need to engage, you know, all the whole range, you know, God made, God made families all different ages, right? We, we, and then, and then what do we do? And, and so often in our churches, well, we divide everybody up into different ages mm. and there's some rationale behind that. But, but the thing is where it really happens in the family is you get a baby, you know, uh, nursing after after dinner at the table, and you've got you've got a toddler, and you've got uh, an adolescent, and you've got a couple teenagers, and um, so fathers need daily grace from the Lord and wisdom from the Lord to open the Word of God and communicate to all of them, all their hearts, and um, this is um, an Advent devotions. I'm calling it working title is. Uh, um, Infant, holy, infant, lowly. That's my favorite carol, actually, the Polish carol. But and it's and it's uh, Advent devotions based on a Christmas. Each one is based on a Christmas carol, story of the carol, uh, context of the carol, and even the music and all. Uh, and really, one of the things I'm trying to define throughout is how do we define beauty? Oh, let me back up. It's not how we define it, is it? How does God define beauty? What is revealed both in the Word of God and then the world that God has made, the natural uh, revelation that tells us what beauty is. Um, and so I want, I want to awaken the understanding of, of the family uh, throughout um, there. So anyway, that's, that's been a delight uh, to, to be working on. I'm, I'm actually already working with a publisher uh, on that one. And um, it's... Uh, that, that's a lot, a lot of fun. And then there's two more in the pipe. Well, I'll go more than that, actually. In the pipe down there, uh, hopefully this this early this early um, uh, new year, I'll be I'll be launching into uh, my beloved Bohemian, uh, the story of Anne of Bohemia, uh, who became a Christian as a young teen, uh, 
by students that had studied in Oxford. Bohemia is the Czech Republic. Uh, but they had studied in Oxford under John Wycliffe. Mm. And they come back in the 1300s to, uh, to the House of Wenceslaus, the royal family, uh, of which Anna Bohemia was the young sister of good King Wenceslaw went out on the Feast of Stephen. That's, that's, that's a house of Wenceslaw. That's the Bohemian court. And, um, and, um, uh, they were translating the scriptures into Czech and they were uh, translating the sermons of John Wycliffe into Czech. She becomes a Christian. She's betrothed to Richard II. You got me going here. Uh, <laughs> to Richard II of England. He's 15. She's 16. She comes over with her entourage from Bohemia, leaves her home, never to go back. Uh, to London, and she is the epitome, the epitome of the godly woman in First Peter three one to seven, who is married to an unbeliever. Mm. She didn't have any say about it. Well, how did? What does she do? Huh. By her quiet and gentle spirit and submissive spirit, insofar as she's able, insofar as he's not calling her to sin against God, she's going to be in a posture of submission, even to this 15-year-old spoiled, rotten, you know, uh, 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 king of England. And he is transformed by uh, her godliness, uh, as Peter uh, describes in First Peter one seven. So anyway, that story is almost written in my whole mind, as you can tell, and that's coming. I'll, I, I look forward so much to launching into that. That'll be historical fiction. It'll be a companion to my book, The Revolt, which is set in in Wycliffe's fourteenth century. Wow, that sounds very interesting. And yeah, these are the stories that that we need to tell. I mean, God has given us obviously the story in the Scripture. He's given us these great stories throughout church history. And the pagan culture wants to bury those stories because they know the power of storytelling and the, po right. the power right. of these stories where God has worked through men and women and gave them courage uh, to stand in the face of often, you know, that we think our situation's bad in many ways it is, but they were facing, you know, some pretty difficult situations and they remain faithful and we're benefiting from that. So we ought to do yeah. the same with our children and future generations. Well, Douglas Bond Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, any final word you'd like to share? Well, one of the ways, too, that I uh, have, have uh, had the privilege of helping to inspire these young men and women and their whole families is, is through my uh, church history tours, which I started leading when I was teaching in this classical Christian high school. We started doing every other year doing a... Uh, uh, a Great Britain trip, and um, <clears throat> as sort of the culmination of our curriculum, and and that's that's morphed a number of years ago, morphed into basically uh, reader reader tours, and and so I do those every year. I um, uh, do at least two tour uh, coach tours a year, and uh, I have one coming up in June that still has some spaces left on it. It's uh, from Frankfurt to Prague. Czech Republic, you can tell one of the people I'm going to be talking about showing sites to in Prague is going to be Anna Bohemia herself, uh, but of course John Huss as well. Right. But much of the trip is uh, a Luther uh, tour, um, Reformation Bond tour in 2024, uh, June 18th through the 28th. It, it will probably fill up. There's been lots of inquiries and registrations, and so that is uh, that is available. We try to make those affordable for homeschool families. Uh, I've had numerous homeschool families and I start sharpening my pencil, figuring out how, how can we get all these kids on here and I can still, you know, I can still balance the budget on this tour. Uh, so I do have wonderful, uh, wonderful homeschool families. Some of them repeat repeats that have been on five tours with me, 11 kids in, in, in Connecticut and, uh, you know, this wonderful family and they just, they just keep coming. 
and uh, so it's it's a uh, it's a wonderful time, and uh, that's something else to consider. And that's at bondbooks.net too. You can uh, read more about those and, and look at pictures from previous tours and see video clips and all that. All right. Well, yeah, I encourage everybody to go to bondbooks.net. There you can find all of Douglas Bond's books. You can also find the information about his Reformation tour coming up in 2024. Well, again, thank you so much, Douglas, for joining me today. For more information about the Lancaster Patriot, go to thelancasterpatriot.com. Until next time, remember, Christ, not man, is king. So long. <laughs>